Howdy everybody. The following common law lesson is brought to you by Republic Keepers, where we learn to inform, to educate, defend, and to self-govern. Please visit the website at www.republickeepers.com. Today's discussion is lesson four in our jury training educational series. Hope you enjoy. Today is March 25th, 2011. This is the, uh, the course in for jury training. We're presently reading the interpretations of the things that were put into the Great Charter or the Magna Carta. And we're studying to see how the it set the rules for what juries do and what kings do and what juries don't do and what kings don't do. I'm beginning at uh, page 17. It says, Doing a thing by law or according to law is only carrying the law into execution. And punishing a man by or according to the sentence or judgment of his peers is only carrying that sentence or judgment into execution. If these reasons could leave any doubt that the word per is to be translated according to, that doubt would be removed by the terms of an antecedent guarantee for the trial by jury granted by the Emperor Conrad of Germany 200 years before Magna Carta. Blackstone cites it as follows in 3 Blackstone 350, and I'm not going to read these Latin words. That is, no one shall lose his estate. Beneficium was the legal name of an estate held by a feudal tenure. No one shall lose his estate unless, according to the custom or law of our ancestors and according to the sentence or judgment of his peers. The evidence is therefore conclusive that the phrase per judicium parium suorum means according to the sentence of his peers, thus implying that the jury and not the government are to fix the sentence. If any additional proof were wanted that juries were to fix the sentence, it would be found in the following provisions of the Magna Carta. These a free man shall not be immersed for a small crime, but according to the degree of the crime, and for a great crime in proportion to the magnitude of it, saving to him his contentment. And after the same manner, a merchant, saving to him his merchandise, and a villain shall be immersed after the same manner, saving to him his wainage. Wainage was the villain's plow, tackle, carts, and implements of the husbandry. If he fell, fall under our mercy, and none of the aforesaid immersements shall be imposed. But by the oath of honest men of the neighborhood, earls and barons shall not be immersed by their, but by their peers, according to the degree of their crime. Pecuniary punishments, money punishments, were the most common 
punishments of that day, and the foregoing provisions of Magna Carta show that the amount of these punishments was to be fixed by the jury. Fines went to the king and were a source of revenue, and if the amount of the fines had been left to be fixed by the king, he would have had a pecuniary temptation to impose unreasonable and oppressive ones. So, also in regard to other punishments than fines. If it were left to the king to fix the punishment, he might often have motives to inflict cruel and oppressive ones. As it was the object of the trial by jury to protect the people against all possible oppression from the king, it was necessary that the jury, and not the king, should fix the punishments. Because juries were to fix the sentence, it must not be supposed that the king was obliged to carry the sentence into execution, but only that he could not go beyond the sentence. He might pardon, or he might acquit on grounds of law, notwithstanding the sentence, but he could not punish beyond the extent of the sentence. Magna Carta does not prescribe that the king shall punish according to the sentence of the peers, but only that he shall not punish unless according to that sentence. He may acquit or pardon, notwithstanding their sentence or judgment, but he cannot punish except according to their judgment. Legally. The word legally in, fray, in the phrase, per legally judicium parium suorum, doubtless means two things. First, that the sentence must be given in a legal manner, that is, by the legal number of jurors, legally impaneled and sworn to try the cause, and that they give their judgment or sentence after a legal trial, both in form and substance, has been had. Number two, that the sentence shall be for a legal cause or offense. If therefore a jury should convict and, a, and sentence a man, either without giving him a legal trial or for an act that was not really and legally criminal, the sentence itself would not be legal. And consequently, this clause forbids the king to carry such a sentence into execution. For the clause guarantees that he will execute no judgment or sentence except that it be legale judicium, a legal sentence. Whether a sentence be a legal one would have, would have to be ascertained by the king or his judgment, judges on appeal, or might be judged of informally by the king himself. The word legale clearly did not mean that the judicium parium suorum, judgment of his peers, should be a sentence which any law of the king should require the peers to pronounce. For in that case, the sentence would not be the sentence of the peers, but only be the sentence of the law, that is, of the king.
and the peers would be only a mouthpiece of the law, that is, of the king, in uttering it. Prolegum terrae. One other phrase remains to be explained. These prolegum terrae by the law of the land. All writers agree that this means the common law. Thus, Sir Matthew Hale says, the common law is sometimes called, by way of eminence, lex terrae, as in the statute of Magna Carta, chapter 29, where certainly the common law is principally intended by those words out for legum terrae, as appears by the exposition thereof in several subsequent statutes, and in the statute of 28 Edward III, chapter 3, which is but an explanation, exposition, an explanation of that statute. Sometimes it is called lex angliae, angliae as in the statute of Merton, cap one, nine, the lumus legis angliae mutari, etc. We will that the laws of England be not changed. Sometimes it is called lex et consuetudo regni, the law and custom of the kingdom. As in all commissions of warrior and terminer, as in all commissions of William Kerr and in the statutes of 18 Edward I, Cap and D. Quo Warranto and diverse others, but most commonly it is called the common law or the common law of England. Now, I, uh, my other machine, I had those definitions up for Fourier uh, and Terminer. And one is uh, the man, and the other side is the pleading. So the two parties, the accuser and the accused, or the one was the terminer is the one who made the demand, the warrior is the one who makes the pleading. But most commonly it is called the common law, or the common law of England, as in the statute Articuli Superchartus. Cap 15 in the statute of 25 Edward III, chapter 5 and 4. And infinite more records and statutes, and that's from Hale's History of the Common Law. This common law, or law of the land, the king was sworn to maintain. This fact is recognized by a statute made at Westminster in 1346 by Edward III, which commences in this manner. Edward, by the grace of God, etc., etc., to the Sheriff of Stafford, greeting, because that by diverse complaints made to us, we have perceived that the law of the land, which we by both, we are by oath, are bound to maintain, etc., Statute 20, Edward III. The foregoing authorities are cited to show to the unprofessional reader that there, what is well known to the profession, that legum terrae, the law of the land, mentioned in the Magna Carta, was the common, ancient, fundamental law of the land, 
which the kings were bound by oath to observe, and that it did not include any statutes or laws enacted by the king himself, the legislative power of the nation. If the legum teri had included laws enacted by the king himself, the whole chapter of Magna Carta now under discussion would have amounted to nothing as a would amounted to nothing as a protection to liberty, because it would have imposed no restraint whatever on the power of the king. The king could make laws at any time, and such ones as he pleased. He could therefore have done anything he pleased by the law of the land, as well as in any other way, if his own laws had been the law of the land. If his own laws had been the law of the land, within the meaning of that term as used in the Magna Carta, this chapter of the Magna Carta would have been sheer nonsense, inasmuch as the whole purport of it would have been simply that no man shall be arrested, imprisoned, or deprived of his freehold, or his liberties, or free customs, or outlawed, or exiled, or in any manner destroyed by the king. Nor shall the king proceed against him, nor shall anyone against him with force of arms, unless by the judgment of his peers, or unless the king shall please to do so. Uh, I hope you all notice the distinction there. This chapter of Magna Carta would, therefore, have imposed not the slightest restraint upon the power of the king, or afforded the slightest protection to the liberties of the people. If the laws of the king had been embraced in the term legum terrae, but if legum terrae was the common law which the king was sworn to maintain, then a real restriction was laid down upon his power and a real guarantee given to the people for his liberties. I want to read that paragraph again. This chapter of Magna Carta would, therefore, have imposed not the slightest restraint upon the power of the king or afforded the slightest protection to the liberties of the people if the laws of the king had been embraced in the term legum terrae. But if legum terrae was the common law which the king was sworn to maintain, then a real restriction was laid upon his power and a real guarantee given to the people for their liberties. Such then being the meaning of legum terrae, the fact is established that Magna Carta took an accused person entirely out of the hands of the legislative power, that is, of the king, and placed him in the power and under the protection of his peers and the common law alone. That, in short, Magna Carta suffered no man to be punished for violating any enactment of the legislative power, unless the peers or equals of the accused freely consented to it or the common law authorized it. That the legislative power of itself was wholly incompetent to require the conviction 
or punishment of a man for any offense whatever. This is saying that any law passed by man in a legislative body does not fall under that thing in the requirement or imposition or mandatory aspect for the jury. The jury was free to judge it. Whether Magna Carta allowed of any other trial than by jury. The question here arises whether Legum Terrae did not allow of some other mode of trial than by jury. Now we've gone through saying that the Legum Terrae was the law of the land, not legislature. Now we're saying did the Magna Carta allow a trial under anything else other than trial by jury. The answer is that at the time of Magna Carta it is not probable for the reasons given in the note that Legum Terrae authorized in criminal cases any other trial than the trial by jury. But if it did, it certainly authorized none but the trial by battle, the trial by ordeal, and the trial by compurgators. The trial by battle was one which the accused challenged his accuser to single combat and stake the question of his guilt or innocence on the result of the duel. This trial was introduced into England by the Normans within 150 years before Magna Carta, but it was not very often resorted to even by the Normans themselves probably never by the Anglo-Saxons, unless in their controversies with the Normans. It was strongly discouraged by some of the Norman princes, particularly by Henry II, by whom the trial by jury was especially favored. It is probable that the trial by battle, so far as it prevailed in all, at all in England, was rather tolerated as a matter of chivalry than authorized as a matter of law. At any rate, it is not likely that it was included in the Legum Terrae of Magna Carta, although such duels have occasionally occurred since that time and have by some been supposed to be lawful. I apprehend that nothing can be properly said to be a part of Lex Terrae unless it can be shown either to have been of Saxon origin or to have been recognized by Magna Carta. The tribi ordeal was of various kinds. If one ordeal, in one ordeal the accused was required to take hot iron in his hand and another to walk blindfold among red hot plowshares and another to thrust his arm into boiling water and another to be thrown with his hands and feet bound into cold water, and another to swallow the morsel of execration and the confidence that his guilt or innocence would be miraculously made known. This mode of trial was nearly extinct at the time of the Magna Carta, and, that, and as that term is used in that instrument, this idea is corroborated by the fact that the trial by ordeal was especially prohibited only four years after the Magna Carta by Act of Parliament in 3 Henry III, according to Sir Edward Coke, or rather by an order of the King in Council. 
I apprehend that this trial was never forced on accused persons, but it was only allowed to them as an appeal to God from the judgment of a jury. Hallam says, It appears as if the ordeal were permitted to persons already convicted by the verdict of a jury. The trial by compurgators was one in which if the accused could bring 12 of his neighbors who would make oath that they believed him innocent, he was held to be so. It is probable that this trial was really the trial by jury and was allowed as an appeal from a jury. It is a wholly improbable it is wholly improbable that two different modes of trial so nearly resembling each other as this and the, as this and the trial by jury do should prevail at the same time and among a rude people whose judicial proceedings would naturally be of the simplest kind. But if this trial really were any other than the trial by jury, it must have been nearly or quite extinct by the time of the Magna Carta, and there is no probability that it was included in the Legum Terrae. These were the only modes of trial except by jury that had been known in England. In criminal cases for some centuries previous, to Magna Carta. All of them had become nearly extinct at the time of the Magna Carta, and it is not probable that they were included in Legum Terrae, as that term is used in that instrument. But if they were included in it, they have now been long obsolete and were such as neither this nor any future age will ever return to. For all practical purposes of the present day, therefore it may be asserted that Magna Carta allows no trial, whatever, but trial by jury. Now whether the Magna Carta allowed sentence to be fixed otherwise than by jury. Still another question arises on the words legum terrae, which is whether in cases where the question of guilt was determined by the jury, the amount of punishment may not have been fixed by legum terrae, the common law, instead of being fixed by the jury. I think we have no evidence whatever that at the time of the Magna Carta, or indeed at any other time, lex terrae, the common law, fixed the punishment in cases where the question of guilt was tried by a jury, or indeed that it did in any other case. Doubtless certain punishments were common and usual for certain offenses, but I do not think it can be shown that the common law, the lex terrae, which the king was sworn to maintain, required any one specific punishment or any precise amount of punishment for any one specific offense. If such a thing could be claimed, it must be shown, for it cannot be presumed. In fact, the contrary must be presumed, because in the nature of things, the amount of punishment proper to be inflicted in any particular case 
it is a matter requiring the exercise of discretion at the time in order to adapt it to the moral quality of the offense, which is different in each case, varying with the mental and moral constitutions of the offenders and the circumstances of temptation or provocation. And Magna Carta recognizes this principle distinctly, as has been shown before, in providing craft erase again. No, necessary. Providing that free men, merchants, and villains shall not be immersed for a small crime, but according to the degree of the crime, and for a great crime in proportion to the magnitude of it, and that none of the aforesaid immersements shall be imposed or assessed but by the oaths of honest men of the neighborhood, and that earls and barons shall not be immersed but by their peers and according to the quality of the offense. All this implies that the moral quality of the offense was to be judged, be judged of at the trial and that the punishment was to be fixed by the discretion of the peers or jury, and not by any such unvarying rule as a common law rule would be. I think, therefore, it must be conceded that, in all cases tried by a jury, Magna Carta intended that the punishment should be fixed by the jury, and not by the common law for these several reasons. 1. It is uncertain whether the common law fixed the punishment of any offense whatsoever. 2. The words per judicium parum suorum, according to the sentence of his peers, implies that the jury fixed the sentence, in some cases tried by them. And if they fixed the sentence in some cases, it may be presumed they did it all unless the contrary be clearly shown. 3. The express provisions of the Magna Carta before adverted to with no amusements or fines could be imposed upon freemen, merchants, or villains, but by this oath of honest men of the neighborhood and according to the degree of the crime, and that earls and barons should not be immersed but by their peers, and according to the quality of the offense, proves that, at least, there was no common law fixing the amount of fines, or if there were, that it was to be no longer in force. And if there was no common law fixing the amount of fines, or if it was to be no longer in force, it was reasonable to infer, in the absence of all evidence to the contrary, that the common law did not fix the amount of any other punishment, punishment, or that it was to be no longer in force for that purpose. Under the Saxon laws, fines payable to the injured party seem to have been the common, excuse me, punishments for all offenses. Even murder was punishable by a fine payable to the relatives of the deceased. The murder of the king even was punishable by fine. 
When a criminal was unable to pay his fine, his relatives often paid it for him. But if it were not paid, he was put out of the protection of the law, and the injured parties, or in the case of murder, the kindred of the deceits, were allowed to inflict such punishment as they pleased. And if the relatives of the criminal protected him, it was lawful to take vengeance on them also. Afterwards, the custom grew up of enacting fines also to the king as a punishment for offenses. And this latter was, doubtless, the usual punishment at the time of the Magna Carta, as it is evidenced by the fact that for many years, immediately following Magna Carta, nearly or quite all statutes that prescribed any punishment at all prescribed that the offender should be grievously immersed or pay a great fine to the king or a grievous ransom. With the alternative in some cases, perhaps understood in all, of imprisonment, banishment, or outlawry in case of non-payment. Judging, therefore, from the special provisions in Magna Carta requiring fines and immersements to be imposed only by juries, without mentioning any other punishments, judging also from the statutes which immediately followed Magna Carta, it is probable that the Saxon custom of punishing all, or nearly all, offenses by fines, with the alternative to the criminal of being imprisoned, banished, or outlawed, and exposed to private vengeance in case of non-payment, continued until the time of Magna Carta, and that in providing expressly that fines should be fixed by the juries, Magna Carta provided for nearly or quite all the punishments that were expected to be inflicted, that if there were to be any others, they were to be fixed by the juries, and consequently that nothing was left to be fixed by legum terrae. But whether the common law fixed the punishment of any offenses or not is a matter of little or no practical importance at this day because we have no idea of going back to any common law punishments of 600 years ago, if indeed there were any such at that time. It is enough for us to know, and this is what is material for us to know, that the jury fixed the punishments in all cases unless they were fixed by the common law. That Magna Carta allowed no punishments to be prescribed by statute, that is, by the legislative power, nor any other manner by the king or his judges. In any case whatsoever, and consequently, that all statutes prescribing particular punishments for particular offenses or giving the king's judges any authority to fix punishments were void. If the power to fix punishments had been left in the hands of the king, it would have given him a power of oppression, 
which was liable to be greatly abused, which there was no occasion to leave with him, and which would have been incongruous with the whole object of this chapter of the Magna Carta, which object was to take all discretionary and arbitrary power over individuals entirely out of the hands of the king and his laws and entrusted only to the common law and the peers or jury that is the people. And that concludes the reading for today. Um, any questions on this particular segment, this subject matter? If not, we can stop the recording.